Welcome to China Perspectives, a podcast on economic and credit developments in China, featuring experts from within and outside of Fitch Ratings. My name is Ying Wang, head of APAC Energy and Utilities and China Research Initiatives at Fitch Ratings. Today, I am pleased to introduce James McDonald, Senior Director and Head of China Research from Savills, based in Shanghai. Founded in the UK in 1855, Savills is a leading property agent with about 600 offices around the world. As Head of China Research at Savills, James closely follows China's real estate market, including different segments across residential, commercial, industrial, and logistics. Today. James will share with us his firsthand on-the-ground observations on the latest development and structural changes in China's real estate market and a broader Chinese economy. James, thank you very much for taking the time to join the podcast. I know you have lived in Shanghai for 20 years or so. I'm sure our audience would be very curious about your background and both your personal and professional experience in China. Perhaps you can give us a short self-introduction. I'm originally from the UK. When I finished studying mathematics at university, I decided I wanted to see the world. And my dad, having grown up in Hong Kong,、um, China seemed like a wonderful place to start. So my first few years in China, whereas most of the younger generation of、um, China experts、um, at the time was a combination of learning Chinese and teaching English. So I, I found a job at Savills in early 2005, and at that time,、um, it still is at the moment.、Uh, but the real estate market was incredibly dynamic,、uh, really sort of just at the, the, the start in terms of the, the current boom. I had great colleagues and mentors, and I was provided with the opportunity to establish and grow the research team at the age of 28. And so, 15 years later, I'm still at Savills, still finding new challenges and opportunities. The market continues to grow and become even more complex. Great. So you have been at the forefront of China's property market for almost two decades. So how would you describe the industry as of today? Well, we'll talk about different segments of the market separately. So, why don't we start off with the residential market, which accounts for about seventy percent of the entire Chinese real estate real estate market? Sure. I mean, the the residential market has always baffled me to a certain extent. While I understand that the last two、um, decades of rapid urbanization and economic growth have generated significant demand for property, the pace is still mind-boggling. When I again twenty years ago, I can't remember exactly what the urbanization rate was, but maybe. So forty percent or so, and now it's sixty percent. So the the consideration that twenty percent of that one point four billion people have moved into urban centres and require homes is just mind boggling. And the key challenge for me though is pricing. I mean, if you look at property markets around the world, the sort of two key metrics that you tend to look at is rental income or yield,、um, and also then affordability. And then when you compare that to what borrowing costs are. All of these metrics don't necessarily make sense within the China context. If you look at it from that perspective, then a lot of the China's leading markets are significantly overvalued.、Uh, but the cultural significance of owning a home and the tremendous wealth that's been generated over the last couple of decades seems to override that sort of that common held logic. But at the moment, I, I would say is that the lower tier cities seem to be questioning or、uh, questioning that logic、um, that we've had in China for the last twenty years a little bit more than it has in the past. Right. Well, currently we are in a property downturn, and we have witnessed very intensive policy support for the residential segment since the second half of last year. There were the three arrows of credit, bonds, equity, and the policymakers wanted to boost home buyers' confidence. This year, in the first quarter, there were some signs of recovery, but seems like the momentum is losing steam based on April and May data. 
Um, so are you expecting more stimuluses to be rolled out by the government? And what could those stimuluses be? Yeah, I think this time is also just to try and put in context. We, we've gone through sort of very lots of mini cycles in the last 10 to 15 years where the government's clamped down on growth. Everything slowed for so six months a year, and then the government's really accelerated the property market. First of all, I think it's important to say that this time is it feels very, very different to what we've seen in the past. The government's level of support is more targeted, more conservative, and it also took a lot longer to actually come through as well. So everything really started back in August 2020 when they introduced the three-year lines. So you've got the three arrows, but you also have the three-year lines as well. So the, the three-year lines really cutting off developer financing, resulting in liquidity crunch, stalled some project completions, cut share values, and also in some instances led to defaults and bankruptcies. But the central government really didn't do anything for the first sort of 18 to 24 months after they introduced that three-year alliance. They sort of trying to let the market sort of reset expectations and the local government's trying to tweak local policies to support their individual local markets. And it was only really when sort of the situation continued to deteriorate and it was clear that the market couldn't stabilize itself, the government really sort of stepped in. And like I said, it's not necessarily full-throated support. We're not trying to see the property market go back to the way it was before, back in sort of 2019, but it's there to stabilize the current market conditions, not necessarily see a, a full-throated recovery, but just make sure it doesn't deteriorate further. So it certainly looks like there may be more need for government action to support the sector. But once again, it, it, I think it will be very targeted to to try and achieve the goals of the government. It'd be very measured and designed to stabilize the market versus to spur growth in the future. Right. So I read a 2023 Market Outlook report you and your colleague published towards the end of last year, and the report title was Another Sunrise, New Opportunities. Um, in the report, you mentioned that the recent residential property market slowdown presents a rare opportunity to make meaningful changes to the composition and long-term dynamics of the industry. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? What, what do you see as the future of China's property market? No, I mean, the, the last couple of decades has really been on an era of unfettered growth, where the majority of developers really focused on speed and scale, and the majority of home buyers have believed that property prices would only continue to rise. I think these previous dogmas and these the home buyers' belief that property prices would only rise now again being questioned, and I think that means that the, the resetting expectations is going to flow through to rebalancing the market. People, when they make their investment decisions into developing new projects where they buy a home, then their logic behind making those acquisitions will change. And so I think that's really important to see a shift into rebalancing the market. So I think that's really important. I think developers and authorities increasingly need to ask, do we need to build a property? Not necessarily, how quickly can you build a property? Which is what the what the previous logic was. So we need to look at, and increasingly what the local authorities and the developers need to do is say, let's look have a look at the existing properties within the market and let's see how we can better maintain them. Because there's a tremendous amount of wealth in the Chinese property market and more focus needs to be on preserving the existing wealth versus adding new stock. And it also needs to be about how can we repurpose some of the existing stock as well, which is what a lot of the, so the leading cities, so Shanghai, Beijing, so Shenzhen, they're starting to look at the, the older stock and how to revitalize that in the urban cores versus continue to build out. So I think that's sort of shifting the mentality as well. Right. Okay. So we talk about the residential market. Now let's shift gear and talk about the commercial real estate space, office and retail, which is yep. where Savile's expertise is. How would you describe the current house condition of China's commercial property market? Is there much risk of asset bubbles? And on the residential side, obviously, there has been a lot of publicity about failures of highly leveraged property developers. Then what about the commercial property developers, commercial property investors? How have they been doing? 
Yeah. So what I would say is that while the residential market concerns have sort of been raised over the last couple of years, I think the commercial market, we already saw a reset in terms of expect- expectations uh, before then. So I think in the past, many investors have been looking at capital value growth within the commercial asset space um, or sort of add value opportunities, taking a, a grade B asset and trying to upgrade it to grade A asset where there's been enough demand where vacancy rates have been low enough that it sort of made sense. But I think that over the last few years, we start to see vacancy rates rise and sort of reset in terms of expectations that we're not seeing further yield compression. If anything, we're starting to see yields being pushed out over the last few years. And so the buyers have called, buy appetite has called in the commercial space um, even before the three red lines. And sort of shifted to what we may talk about later on, sort of the new economy sectors, what other areas where there's maybe more structural shift in terms of the economy and society that is generating new demand for some of these new economy sectors. And so sort of previous valuations, which are based upon these, are now being again tested. So as a, as a new set of buyers coming through into the market with different expectations in terms of where yields are or capital value growth is going forwards, some of those owners of existing assets having to reassess their asset value expectations. So is there a recovery of the occupancy rate and rental rates in the office and retail space since China's reopening towards the end of last year? Because I would think intuitively a removal of the zero COVID policy, a reopening of the economy should be positive for the commercial property Mm -hmm. space. And we have seen from the high frequency data showing that the urban commuters traffic flow in major Chinese cities has return to pre-pandemic levels and demand for catering, entertainment, you know, the consumer-facing services is also going up. What's the story of recovery in a commercial property space? Yeah, so there's a couple of points there. So what I would say is that real estate doesn't tend to move as fast as these fast-moving economic data. So just because um, more people are taking the metro doesn't necessarily mean that companies the next day are going to open up new office space. So I think there's always a lag between some of the economic data you get released and business decisions being made. I mean, obviously, when you're looking at leasing new office space, you maybe take three to six months just to look at potential locations. You got fit out, then you got relocation. You got so it, it takes a long time to see a recovery in terms of the economy actually feeding through into sort of new office expansions or store expansions. So that's one thing. I think one of the other things is that um, the Chinese economy has not just been impacted by COVID, but also has a number of other challenges that it has to face. And so I think for a number of businesses and retailers, they need to see a meaningful change in terms of some of those uh, factors to be more confident, be able to actually look at increasing their, their footprint in China. So while it is encouraging and while it is positive, again, sort of alluding to what you said before about sort of the April-May residential sales figures, maybe the first three months looked relatively promising, but again, that, that sort of the pace in terms of recovery has sort of slowed in the last couple of months as well. So how sustainable, how long-term is this recovery and what are the other economic issues that companies being faced with? Right. Based on what you mentioned earlier about the declining rental rates, increasing vacancy rates across the commercial space, is this prevalent across different regions? Like if we look at different tiers of Chinese cities in terms of oversupply risk. Any regions or cities um, stand out as winners or losers in particular? And also another question I want to ask is, since this trend has been going on for several years, why is supply still, still increasing? What I would say is that if you look at sort of oversupply, then I would say that oversupply has been a big issue in terms of some of the lower tier cities for quite a long period of time. There was a expectation or hope that the demand for office space would filter through into from, from first tier cities would filter through into second tier cities. You see companies upgrading the space from strata title grade B stock into grade A leasable stock. And so a number of developers went into these locations said that we're only going to do leasable grade A space. But I think the the expectations weren't fully realized. And so there was a lot of new supply that came to the market. Maybe the demand didn't pick up quite as quickly as many people were expecting. So 
because there were new markets, vacancy rates were quite high for a long period of time. They have come down to more manageable levels, but certainly not stable levels. So they've maybe gone, come down from 30 40% down to 20 15%, but they're still not at levels where you can see sort of strong growth in terms of rents or where landlords are incredibly comfortable with the current levels of occupancy. I think what's different over the last few years is that we start to see an increase in terms of vacancy rates in first tier cities like Shanghai and Beijing, where historically we've seen relatively low levels of vacancy rate. Partly that's due to new supply coming through into the market. I mean, cities like Shanghai, we've sort of came out with a few years ago with the idea of the five new cities. We've seen expansion of the commercial markets along the riverfront locations or new uh, master plan locations, which are coming through. So that's created a lot of new supply. And obviously with COVID globally, but also in China, 2020 was a terrible year for us. Uh, 2022 was an incredibly challenging year for us. And so we haven't seen the same levels of take-up that we've seen in the past. But I think even if we had seen the same levels of take-up we've seen in the past, I think it still would be a challenging market given the levels of oversupply. And I think your second question was more about why do people keep on building? One of the factors is that obviously when you buy a piece of land versus when that project is completed, there's a, quite a significant lag between there. So a lot of the stuff that's coming through into the market now was acquired pre-COVID and so nobody really had a sense that the economy would be so dramatically affected or nobody knew that COVID was coming around the corner and, and so they're still building for sort of what they had the long-term growth projections for the economy and so that's certainly a case that, that between when the land is sold and when the project is completed is certainly a case. China everything's built speculatively uh, or pretty much everything's built speculative, speculatively so there's no pre-commitments and, until sort of 12 months before handover. And then it's also the land supply itself. So um, a lot of local governments like to sell commercial mixed-use land plots to developers because it brings in businesses and brings in tax dollars and creates jobs for the local population. So there's in Chinese, there's this concept of lou jingji, which is basically you build the space and then companies will come and they'll create a tax base and create employment, create economic growth. And so they're selling that concept. And then from a developer's perspective, I think there's always a, a belief that your project can be better than everybody else's project. And so when you complete it, you'll be able to attract tenants who are looking at upgrading or relocating to better quality space. And so there's always a belief that your project will do better than others. So despite this oversupply risk, I read in your 2023 market outlook report that the office market remains one of the most actively invested asset classes and office accounts for about half of the overall commercial property transaction value. So I'm just curious, who are these investors in the office market and what is still driving their investment appetite? Again, just because it accounts for a big chunk of the investment market doesn't necessarily mean that investment levels are growing. I think globally, we've seen sort of a slowdown in terms of the overall appetite for real estate investment over the last year or so. But it does account for a big chunk just because if you look at an RMB valuation basis, the total consideration of an office asset may be, say, 5 billion RMB, whereas when you look at maybe the smaller retail facilities or logistics facilities, then there may be, say, a billion or less than a billion. And so one or two big office deals can, can have a big impact in terms of total consideration. One of the other reasons why office continues to make up a big chunk of the overall market is just because it's such a vast sector. If you look at some of these niche asset classes, which again, we may be talking about later on, then they're relatively small markets. So you can't see too much trade happening within those areas. Whereas the office market, say in Shanghai, greater office spaces, maybe excluding business parks, about 17 million square meters. So th there's a lot of assets that could potentially be traded. And then also, why are people investing? Because it is one of the most largest markets. It's one of the most liquid markets. It's one of the most transparent markets. And, and so that gives investors a degree of confidence that if you need to sell, you can potentially sell. It may be a significant discount to market, but there was always going to be a, a potential buyer. And then who's buying? So I think at the moment, buyers have changed from five years ago. So we're looking at 
a lot more long-term money, uh, which are maybe not, again, chasing those capital value growth, but more focusing in terms of yield and also end users as well. So some end users have made significant amounts of money over the last few years and they've taken some of those proceeds and actually brought to a headquarter office locations. And so there's some of that as well. Again, in Shanghai, we've seen some office assets, just 10,000 square meter office assets, which have traded for, say, close to a billion RMB. So these are relatively small assets trading at high per square meter valuations, which have a outsized impact in terms of overall sort of makeup in terms of investment volumes. What I would say is, is that I think we are seeing a shift in terms of makeup. The office is still the largest component, but we are seeing some other sectors which are seeing stronger growth potential going forwards. Okay. So now let's move on and talk about something else. I'm going to touch on one of those many challenges that the Chinese consumers are facing nowadays in a broader economy context. So Savills, as far as I know, has advised many of the multinational companies' property decisions in China when they relocated their production lines to China and also expanded their local presence during the golden era of globalization. But in the last couple of years that we have seen, things have changed. Unlike, you know, the previous three decades when we had very strong foreign capital inflow into China, there's a lot of challenge nowadays facing the multinational companies and foreign investors. You name it, anything, you know, from ranging from geopolitical tensions, looming recession risk from inflation, interest rate increases, um, and also technology and trade barriers. Um, you work at Savills, so I'm sure you've got on-the-ground observations you hear from your multinational clients. What are they doing now? What are they thinking? Are you seeing an increase of multinational companies scaling back in Chinese investments, um, suspending or reducing investments in China? And do you expect this to potentially increase, become a wider trend? Yeah, so I think it's it's an incredibly difficult question to answer just because I think that every industry, every company is in a very unique situation. I think the biggest change is that if you ask many companies five years ago what their perspective in terms of China was, then I think there would be one answer to that question. There would be, look, we are continuing to invest in China for, for manufacturing, for exports, for, for, for consumption, for everything. So I think most companies would have said, look, we continue to invest in the China market. We see tremendous growth potential. So I think the biggest change is that there is no one answer to that question anymore. I think that some companies are still focused on China. I think other companies are looking at alternatives. Obviously, if you're focused on the export market and industries which have been targeted by trade sanctions, then that's obviously going to have a big impact in terms of your business operations. And so you may be considering scaling down or, or relocating or China plus one where you don't scale down your China operations, but the export markets for your China manufacturing and maybe more domestically within the Asia region, whereas you maybe open up another location close to the EMEA markets or North American markets to, to service those markets. So you may be looking at sort of a breakup in terms of supply chain or production capacity into different markets. I mean, there's been other trends talk about deglobalization for a long period of time, and there's reasons for that. There's so that, that the building resilience into supply chains, um, looking at, at more sustainable supply chains where you're not shipping goods halfway across the world. And, and so there's other motivators behind that as well. And obviously, one of the, the sort of biggest market-focused reasons for, for looking at alternatives to China is just that um, because China's been such a massive success story that wages have increased quite significantly, that labor costs, which for, for some sectors are a significant component, have increased quite, quite significantly compared to some Asian or, or South American um, peers. And so from that perspective, then, then those uh, companies may be looking at relocating. But I think if you look at, say, sort of the professional services sector, consumer-focused industries, where China is the end consumer of, the, of those services and products, and I, I, I think it's 
hard to see how companies can find an alternative to China. I mean, China's, for many companies, maybe the biggest or the second biggest market outside of the home markets. It's still, while not growing at the same pace it was before COVID, still one of the faster growing markets in the world. And so to voluntarily sort of cede that market share that they may be built up through blood, sweat and tears over the last 10 years, to voluntarily cede that to their competitors, whether it be domestic or other international firms, it is quite challenging. But I would say that sort of any sort of new investment will have to be sort of seriously considered and pros and cons weighed. Companies look at their overall degree of exposure they have to the China markets. Um, and so it's not as simple as, yes, we'll continue to invest, but we have to look at how to invest and how to sort of build out resilience in terms of our, our global operations. I mean, obviously, recently the, in the news, there's been talk about sort of potential spin-offs of China operations. So there's a whole range in terms of different strategies, whether selling to a, selling to a local competitor, if, if you do want to reduce exposure or sort of separate spin-offs. But I think generally speaking, if you're looking at sort of consumer markets, I think a lot of the international companies are, are still here for the long run. It's interesting that you mentioned the consumer goods companies, service companies are more likely to stay committed to the China market because of the size of this end market. But at the same time, we see that China's consumer and retail industry um, is becoming increasingly competitive. We talked about a soft residential property market and also the increased household leverage curb Chinese consumer spending power. And obviously, the Chinese consumption concepts and consumer behavior have also undergone dramatic changes in the last couple of years. We see that many successful local brands are taking shares from the foreign brands. So based on your research covering the retail property market and also based on your personal experience as a resident here in Shanghai, what are your observations on China's consumer market? Do you share the optimism about the long-term Chinese consumption growth potential? I'm very glad you sort of said long-term consumer prospects because I do think in the short term, things are incredibly challenging. I think we did get a temporary burst of activity and travel in the first few months of this year, but I do think that the economic reality sort of settled in in, sort of, um, in April and May. And I do think people are going to be a little bit more conservative about spending the next month's paycheck than they have been in the past. But I do think many people, when they look at the Chinese economy, the last couple of decades has been driven by real estate investment, infrastructure investment, by manufacturing and exports markets. And I don't think that's necessarily going to be a key driver of the economy, or I don't think it can be a key driver of the economy going forwards. And so many people say that we need to look at great or a bigger chunk of economic growth coming from domestic consumption. Um, so I think that's incredibly important. I think retailers understand this and that they're in China for the long run. I don't think they're necessarily, they'll, they'll be looking at sort of the short-term prospects, but they'll also be looking at saying that we're not going to put out China and then sort of trying to re-enter in five years' time when the market picks up or five months' time when the market picks up. I think they understand that if you pull out now, then it'll be even harder to come back into the Chinese market going forwards. And then to your point about sort of domestic competition, I think international brands have to be in China to see what the domestic competition is doing because sometimes the domestic competition is leading the way in terms of consumer engagement and dialogue and product development. I think some of these international brands are actually learning from the Chinese consumer about social e-commerce or about just the development of e-commerce in general and some of that's been then being exported into overseas markets. So I think it's an incredibly important dynamic retail market that um, if you are a global retailer, you really have to be part of. Earlier in our conversation, you brought up an interesting term, new economy. So my question is going to be about new economy. Um, as we know that the Chinese government nowadays is supporting and strengthening the uh, new economy industries, which include 5G, semiconductor, advanced manufacturing, logistics, electric vehicles, renewable energy, etc. And the purpose is to transform the economy to boost productivity, 
um, move up the industrial value chain to earn higher income and wages, drive to service demand and create more jobs, and also importantly to um, increase self-sufficiency of key inputs and products. If this transformation is successful, obviously this will be very positive for the property market as well. Are you seeing a shift in a mix of commercial property investors, rental clients aligned with this economic structural shift? Like how would you describe the current demand for new economy assets, real estate assets, such as um, industrial and logistics parks? And then where's the investment capital coming from? Yeah. So I think Certainly over the last few years, we've seen a, a shift in terms of where the funds in private equity firms are investing into these new economy sectors. And that's partly because of the government support, but also really importantly because of the structural changes in society and the economy, which is driving that demand. And, and historically, we've seen a significant amount of underinvestment in terms of some of these sectors, which has sort of really meant that while you saw a significant cap rate compression in terms of some of the commercial asset classes, some of the yields in terms of some of these new economy sectors or niche asset classes were still relatively high. So some of these funds and private equity firms sort of pivoted into these sectors for the higher returns and that growth potential. And now in the past, the biggest challenge has really been that there's not been much investment grade product out there. And so what these private equity firms have really had to do is try and build to core. Um, so they've invested in local developers or, or local startups that have then gone and developed this product, which is now starting to come to the market. Now, over the last three or four years, or even five years now, these private equity funds have been investing in the market. We've seen those cap rates compress quite significantly to a point that now in the first tier cities, they're only maybe 50 basis points, 100 basis points above where commercial real estate assets are at the moment. And so the funds are, are sort of starting to look at bringing some of this product to the market that they built over the last three to four years. And, and given where the pricing is at the moment, given where the economy is at the moment, then the actual potential buyers for this are going to be these longer term investors that we were talking about before buying into the office market. So if you look at sort of domestic insurance companies, they'll be looking at the office market, but they'll also be looking at the logistics market as well. Again, slightly differentiation, uh, slight diversification in terms of the asset holdings, but still so these sort of longer terms of core assets that we see, which need less asset management. All right. Well, before we wrap up the podcast today, let me pivot back to the real estate market. It has become very clear that the era of easy capital appreciation has ended in China's real estate market. And as you mentioned, there is an increasing focus on longer term stable returns and also uh, long-term investors like pension funds, insurance companies are increasing as well. And among these sources of long-term capital, REITs are a relatively new channel for public market exit and capital raising. And currently there are about 30 or less REITs listed in the domestic Chinese A-share market. And around half of them are toll road assets. But recently, we saw in the news that the Chinese government has expanded the scope of REITs to commercial real estate assets beyond the traditional infrastructure assets. And this has led to market expectation of further growth of C-REITs. And the policymakers are hoping that this can help to boost property developers' liquidity because they can spin off the commercial assets into REITs and they can recycle capital for retail real estate assets as well, such as the shopping malls. And this, again, will serve the government's goal to boost consumption. So what is your view on the market growth potential for commercial C-REITs? Should we be expecting a boom of IPOs from the sector soon? Yeah, so like you said, I mean, the initial wave in terms of REITs was really focused on, well, I think they initially called infrastructure REITs. 
And so they're focused on toll roads through the treatment plants, renewable energy sector, but also within the logistics and business park sector. A couple of years ago or two years ago or a year and a half ago, they started expanding to affordable housing as well. So it's actually gone through a couple of different iterations already. So starting off with infrastructure, then moving to affordable housing, now moving into, into, into the retail sector. So I think the reason why they focused on infrastructure in the first place is because it was a relatively illiquid market where the government really wanted to channel new investment and provide some liquidity to, as you said, to investors that have moved into those areas where there wasn't particularly that much trade and there wasn't much transparency. And then also affordable housing as well, the same sort of concept that it's a relatively new sector, which only started developing over the last six or seven years. There's not been very many exits. Who is the eventual buyers, potentially the REIT market? And so this time it feels a little bit different because it is more focused on something that is actively traded when you look at the investment market. You do see sort of trades in terms of the retail asset class in the past. And so it is a more transparent market, it's more traded market than some of these other areas. The purpose behind it and maybe the potential for it to, to grow in the future is slightly different to what we've seen for the infrastructure and the residential sectors. So as you said, it's much more part and parcel of this sort of readjustment in terms of developers' rights on debt to increasingly injecting more equity into the property market, enabling the developers to become more asset-like models by selling down equity, maybe maintaining as a sponsor in the REIT market, so 20% equity in the REIT and become the asset manager. So I think this is part and parcel of that. So I certainly think from a developer's perspective, the retail market is not as traded as the office market. There are trades that happen, but it's not as traded as the office market. And so this creates a good opportunity for them to divest of those retail assets where they didn't have the opportunity before. And so I certainly think a lot of developers will be looking at this quite seriously. And if they do have a, a good brand awareness, if you do see that institutional investors and also individual investors are aware of the developer, aware of the shopping malls, there may be more sort of a, a direct connection to potential buyers. And so it may encourage a little bit more investment for them. But I think more recently, if you look at the, the overall state of the REIT market, then we have seen some of the REITs which have launched over the last few years actually see quite a significant fall in terms of share price. So some of these REITs that are being launched, they're down 30 40% from their peak valuations. So there may in the short term be some reticence to participate in future REITs. But I think over the longer term, that understanding of the retail product, that awareness of the retail brand, if it is a well-known brand, will maybe pull in some investors more so than say, again, as you said, toll roads or sewage treatment plants, where there's maybe less of an understanding about the dynamics or less, not less of a connection between the consumers and the retail firms. So I do think there is potential. And if you look at other markets globally, then when you look at the US market, again, a very, very diversified retail, uh, so REIT market into multiple different asset classes. And there is no sense as to why REITs in China should stay with infrastructure and residential, but you should see uh, multiple different types of asset classes coming through into the market eventually. Thank you very much, James, for your valuable insight. I'm very grateful that you took the time today to join the podcast. Any closing remarks you would like to make before we wrap up? I think the only thing I'd just like to say is just that thank you very much for having me on the podcast. And also when talking about the real estate market, it is an incredibly challenging period of time. But I think, as mentioned before, it provides us an opportunity to reassess the previous assumptions of the real estate market and enables participants within the real estate market to transition to hopefully what will be a healthy, more balanced market. And that'll be for the betterment of the, the market going forwards. Thanks again, James. You have been listening to Fitch Reading's China Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our ratings and research on China, visit us at FitchRatings.com. Please subscribe to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Take care until next time.